There's crispy, and then there's crispy, er. Try our new and improved Tyson crispy chicken strips. Crispy just got crispy, er. I I love LeBron James. He's the the most complete basketball player I've ever seen. LeBron has an unselfishness and a thoughtfulness and a political consciousness that I think has always been remarkable. This, however, I think is a moment where they all fail. Steve Kerr, Greg Popovich, and LeBron. And I say that with no great pleasure. I say that with a deep sense of disappointment. How one can disagree with Daryl Morey, particularly as a person of color, seems to me incredibly difficult. Hello, everyone. You're listening to HBCU 468, the Roden Fellows podcast. I'm your host, Arthur Cribbs, and I'm coming to you from Howard University in Washington, D.C. My co-hosts on the line today are East Dockery from North Carolina A&T State University in Greensboro, North Carolina, and Bill Roden from New York via Morgan State University in Baltimore, Maryland. Randall Williams is from Hampton University, and he's on social. How are you guys doing on this wonderful Friday? I'm doing great. Everything is mellow in New York. Great. Well, same here. So before we dive into sports, the Walt Disney Company debuted its new streaming service, Disney+. Plus. The streaming service features a wide array of Disney content, including movies like Marvel and Star Wars films, as well as classic and original Disney shows. So I want to ask you... Okay, everybody, let's take it from the top. Something's happening. Something extraordinary. Something exciting. Something authentic and true. Everything changes now. And snap. What's next? The future. That's our specialty. Woohoo! Are you watching Disney Plus? And if so, what shows and movies are you excited about? Love Disney Plus. Do you get a discount? I, I agree with Bill. Um, hoping to get that discount. Uh, <laughs> I'll probably watch the first movie. I'll probably watch uh, if I get it. Will be Avengers uh, Endgame, just so I can cry again. So I'll probably. Wait a minute. You haven't watched it yet, or you just watched watch it again? I just want to watch it again. It'll be my third time watching it. Oh, wow. East. <laughs> Yikes. Well, I, I thought you were going to say Sleeping Beauty. Oh, no. <laughs> Pinocchio. <laughs> Come on, Bill. How old do you think we are? <laughs> Wait a minute. Have you ever seen Gone with the Wind? No. Mm-mm. I mean... Sleepy Beauty, that's like a classic. You don't have to be, I mean, let let me ask you a question. Are you saying just because you're a certain age, you can't watch any old movies? Is that what you guys are telling me? So what's the point of history? So why don't you tell your history professor you don't want to study history because it's too old? No, that is not the case. I just feel like it takes a certain amount of patience to watch. Sleepy Beauty, that's a classic story. (laughs) So Bill, when we're thinking about classics, it's like stuff that we grew up with. So for me, it's like that's a Raven or Proud Family. Yeah, and for like, me, it's a lion. I have Disney. 
Yeah, so it's like stuff that we grew up with. So wait a minute. So why do you take history? So when your professor gives you some reading of something in the, in the 19th century, he said, we ain't reading that. We didn't grow up in that. We, we, don't know about, we don't want to know about Frederick Douglass. That's too old. So Rosa Parks, she's irrelevant, right? She's too old. Right? Why am I going to read about Rosa Parks? Well, I feel like I know enough about all the historical figures that I'm supposed to know. You feel me? Like, Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks, the basics. Like, oh, boy. All right. Lord, now I know what my parents, now I don't know what my parents tell me. Lord, what's going on in the black culture? <laughs> I know, like me personally, I already have Disney Plus, and so I've watched Avatar and Big Hero 6. Um, those are just like two Disney movies that I really like. But there are so many streaming services, and so do you think Disney Plus can compete with other services like Hulu and Netflix? Hmm. I guess. I mean, you've got such a tremendous inventory. I think eventually they will. Sure. I think it can compete. I feel like people, Disney Plus serves more for, like, nostalgic purposes. I think the people who are going to turn into Disney Plus our age is just looking to, like, rewatch stuff we've seen before, but we also know it's good content, so that's why we have it. So, wait a minute. So, if I, if I subscribe to Disney Plus, which I do, I could, I could see Endgame? Yes. Yes. Oh. That's exciting. Were you satisfied with Endgame? Yeah, it was really good. It was like the second best Avengers movie. What was the first best? The one right before Endgame. I'm blaming on the name. Wait a minute. You're not mentioning Black Panther? Well, I was thinking like Avengers-specific movies. No. Personally, I think Disney Plus can still compete. um, And I think people can have all Disney Plus and Netflix and Hulu just because there's so many streaming services. And even the price of all the streaming services is still cheaper than having traditional cable. So I think people are fine with just paying extra to have multiple uh, services. So, uh, yeah, what about you? Well, I'm, I'm watching the game last night, the brawl, and I'm thinking, this is great. I mean, cause that's, that's real, live, unscripted TV. Maybe that's why sports is still all the best. You can't make that stuff up. It's like the arena, people slam each other down. I mean, that's like great unscripted drama. Almost better than better than a streaming service. But uh, that's not what you asked. That's my thought. All right, so we have some great guests and discussions lined up for us today. First up, we'll be speaking with Africana Studies and English professor at Cornell University, Grant Ferrid, about the globalization of the NBA and how it's changed the league over the past decade. Later on in the show, we'll talk about the emergence of the group known as American Descendants of Slavery, or ADOS, with Howard University professor Greg Carr. Let's get right to it. Over the past decade, the NBA has globalized tremendously as the league has expanded its presence throughout China, India, and the continent of Africa. At the start of the 2019 season, over 100 international players were on NBA rosters, representing nearly 40 countries. The growing expansion of the NBA has brought up questions about how the league and its players should handle social issues in the international space. On the line to speak with us about this is Dr. Grant Farid, who is currently working as a professor of Africana Studies and English at Cornell University. He literally wrote the book about the globalization of the NBA. In 2006, he published Phantom Call, Race and the Globalization of the NBA, which centers around former Houston Rockets center Yao Ming and an incident where he was targeted by officials because of his race. It has only been 13 years since Phantom Call came out, 
But we are curious to see how much the NBA has changed in this time. Thanks for being on the show, Dr. Ferris. Thank you very much for having me, sir. So before we jump into the NBA, you recently wrote a book about soccer players like Lionel Messi and Luis Suarez. So what sparked your interest when it comes to writing about sports? I know more about sports than is good for anybody, sir. <laughs> I don't think it's healthy. I, you know, I sometimes even watch Gaelic curling. I don't think anybody should do that. <laughs> but I, I grew up. Um, in Cape Town, South Africa, and I played actively as a boy and as a young man. I played football and cricket and just about anything that was going. So in many ways, sport is what enabled me growing up as a disenfranchised black kid in South Africa to live beyond the confines of the apartheid state. You know, and I, and I followed just about every major sport. I, I became a a Mets, Knicks, Rangers, Giants fan, sadly enough. Um, <laughs> as soon as I arrived in this country some 31 years ago. So, you know, sport in many ways has been my entree into the world. What was your favorite sport? My favorite sport? It's, it's an odd one. You know, um, I would have to say cricket, mm. even though my passion, you know, I, I live my life through my beloved Liverpool football club. But the game that I that I I love the most is cricket because it takes time and it's um, you know it's a it's a contemplative game in which many things can happen and nothing can happen for very long time long periods. So there's a certain poetry to sport. Doctor Fred, you mentioned that you're a Knicks fan, and so jumping to the NBA, uh, <laughs> the NBA ran into questions about how owners should comment on the situation in China and the protesters in Hong Kong. So, in your opinion. How should the league handle social issues uh, in countries outside the U.S.? When I wrote Phantom Calls in 2006, I had no clue that the NBA, and I'm not sure anybody could have foreseen this growth. But that, it seems to me, was a very particular NBA. And that NBA is no longer extant. That was an NBA in which there were certain players and teams that dominated you know, I, I love LeBron James. He's the, the most complete basketball player I've ever seen. Though Kawhi Leonard, on the, you know, on the basis of what he did with the Raps last year, certainly comes close. But LeBron has an unselfishness and a thoughtfulness and a political consciousness that I think has always been remarkable. This, however, I think is a moment where they all fail. Steve Kerr, <clears throat> Greg Popovich, and LeBron. And I say that with no great pleasure. I say that with a deep sense of disappointment. But I also say that with a recognition that we have to understand the following, sir. All of us, every single one of us, are complicit in the workings, the machinations of global, global capital. And because we live in the U.S., we are even more enmeshed in it. And what I think LeBron and the NBA stared in the face and was made uncomfortable by was the recognition that Daryl Morey speaking out and how one can disagree with Daryl Morey, particularly as a person of color, seems to me incredibly difficult yeah. because the people in Hong Kong are not saying we want sovereignty because they know how problematic that would be. They are simply saying we do not want to be exposed to police violence and we do not want to be vulnerable to the dictates of the Chinese Politburo. And so, you know, what the NBA is, is doing right now 
It's been hung by its own petard. It's wanted to court China. It's wanted to expand into China. It's wanted to make money out of China. And now it's understand that the conditions of capital are politically determined in the first instance. Hey, Dr. Ferry, this is East. Do you think the globalization of the sport changed who we consider to be good athletes? I think, I think we've been doing that for a long time anyway. I think one has to remember that, you know, politically, historically, African-Americans, especially during the antebellum period, we can just think about Nate Turner, some of the rebellions. They were deeply inspired by what was happening in the Caribbean, what was happening outside. I'm sure Dr. Mr. Roden can speak to this, but to have grown up in America from the 1950s through, I imagine, the 1970s, all that turbulence, the civil rights era, black power, those were phenomenal moments, but they, as much as they were generated within the U.S., they were also mutually engaged in a conversation and a derivation, even, I would say, with factors or with political movements in sub-Saharan Africa in particular. So there's always been a form of exchange. And, you know, that exchange can take many shapes, it can take many articulations, it can assume many bodies. And so, you know, the face of the Spurs during their dominance was not Greg Popovich. It was a man from the Virgin Islands. You know, it was Tim Duncan. And... There was an Argentine on that team, Manu Ginobili. There was a Frenchman, Tony Parker. There's an Australian there now. I mean, you can just... this. I used to call this the United Nations of vanilla, not in a derogatory sense, but they all subsume themselves into the project as team. And so what I think we're encountering is a sense of the athlete as exceptional within the context of a team. And I think however LeBron, however successful he has been, his greatest accomplishment for me is his complete unselfishness. LeBron is always looking to pass first and so to draw people in. And you can't think beyond Tony Parker, Manu Ginobili, especially Tim Duncan, without sublimating them into firstly a team and then to render them as non-American. I mean, I just think what has happened in a global world is that Tony Parker is as much a figure of the American political and cultural imaginary as is LeBron James. And that's really what globalization has done. It has made people from outside of this country as much a part of the cultural fabric as anybody else. Mm-hmm. So, as the NBA, it prides itself on expanding markets. Now, you know, went into India to start the season. Now it's going to start in Africa. What are the perils and pitfalls of that? Because, again, there are all these potential traps, and I'm not sure if the players are really fluent enough. You know, I mean, it's just a one-way, they're just taught it's a one-way street. It's, you, 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 get, you take money out, you got factories there. What are the, some of the perils? that face the NBA as it continues to go on this global path. The cost, Mr. Roden, of 
inspiring in young athletes, male, female, transgender, you name it, yes, aspiration to be a professional athlete. Mm. It is costly because these young people are yanked out of school or they come from in Brazil, the favelas, or, or they come from, you know, um, the outlying areas of uh, Southern African township or sub-Saharan African, you know, for want of a better term, impoverished community. And one of the first things that I think is sacrificed in that is a formal education. And as we know, formal education is increasingly unavailable to the most marginalized people. And in a world that is increasingly technologized, that education becomes all the more valuable, and not only valuable, but necessary in order to negotiate the world. One of the things an education does is it instructs us to think outside of ourselves, but also it forces us, compels us to grapple with a series of difficulties that are not necessarily of our own making or recognizable as belonging to our context. Failing the ability to acquire a formal education, many of these people get left on the scrap heap of not only history but humanity. They don't have sufficient skills to compete in a global economy. They're the one talent they believe they had, and you know, African-Americans know as much about this as anybody else. Yes, I mean, we've, there's a, an entire genre of movies, New Jack City movies with Boys in the Hood and, you know, there's a, there's a, um, sorry, there's one other movie I'm, I'm forgetting about. Uh, Lorenz Tate is, is wonderful in it. Um, but anyway, I, the name will come to me later. But African Americans have dealt with this. They've confronted this problem both cinematically and educationally. I was down in Nashville, you know, about two months ago, and Fisk University, which gave birth to, you know, literally gave birth to the souls of black folk. It is under severe economic strain. Enrollment is less than a thousand at Fisk University. This is where W. E. B. Du Bois worked, learned, and where he wrote the souls of black folk. So, you know, I am emphasizing the education, but only as a way to branch out into all kinds of other aspects of this. The economic people who are not equipped to deal with the technological world will become victims. Um, People who are not socially acculturated will find other avenues. But the human cost, that's what I'm concerned about. Because the NBA goes there, it extracts wealth, it, you know, it, 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 it wants to set up camps, and you know, it, it markets itself. We have um, Dikembe Mutombo, who's from the Congo and speaks a number of languages. Just look, if you, you know, I've been going on about the San Antonio Spurs. Look at um, the current NBA champions, you know. Yes, it's Kawhi Leonard, but you have a Spaniard, and you have, I think, somebody from the Democratic Republic of the Congo. The best player on the, uh, on the Toronto Raptors is Siakam. Right? I mean, you, you just look at these things. But let me just do this numerically. For every Siakam, think about how many other people are not making it. For every Dikembe Matambo, Think of how many other people are not making it. Think of that kind of devastation. So I am not addressing your question in any way fully, Mr. Roden, but I do want to say that the human cost for me is both visible and incalculable. Mm. Uh, that's great. Well, thank you, Dr. Farad. It was great insight about the global affairs and about the history of the NBA. So thanks again. But before we close out, 
we have a quick trivia segment where we'll ask you some <laughs> quick lightning round questions with the first thing that comes to mind. So, East, take okay. it away. Hey, Dr. Farid. So, yes, you have written extensively about both basketball and soccer. So, my question is, would you rather be given a ticket to an NBA Finals game or a ticket to the 2022 FIFA World Cup? Oh, I... That's an easy question. I'm taking the NBA Finals, and it's going to be very painful because the Knicks are never going to be in it. <laughs> okay. So if you could start your own new class, what would the subject be? My own new class? What would it be? It would be to teach people about thinking and the value of education. I'm a very old-fashioned man. Well, great answer. So thank you, Dr. Fade, and thanks again for coming to our show if people want to follow you and your work, where can we find you? Oh, I have absolutely no social media presence. I'm the kind of guy who still, you know, insists that my students buy books. I would say go to Amazon and see what I'm writing. That's about all I can tell you. I'm, um, or go to, your, go to your nearest library. That's okay, you know. That's even better, in fact, because then you can see so many other books. That, that would be my recommendation. <laughs> Great answer. Well, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll discuss a political movement from a group known as American Descendants of Slavery. Hosting and producing this podcast has chosen to attend a historically black college or university, either currently or in the past. A big part of the HBCU experience is honoring black American history and culture. 
Though anyone can attend an HBCU, Black American culture is front and center and cannot be overlooked. A group known as the American Descendants of Slavery, or ADOS, are taking this sentiment a step further and are asking that the government, colleges, and employers acknowledge them as separate from Black immigrants who live in the U.S. In a nutshell, they say that having ancestors who were enslaved has made their lived experiences vastly different from Blacks who grew up in places like Jamaica or the continent of Africa, and then moved to the U.S. voluntarily. They are also concerned that affirmative action policies originally designed to help Black people who descended from slavery in America are actually benefiting other groups like Black people from the Caribbean or the continent more. On the line to help us unpack this political movement is Dr. Greg Carr. Dr. Carr is an associate professor and chair of the Department of Afro-American Studies at Howard University. He has also represented Howard as a spokesman for various platforms, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, and MSNBC. Thanks for being on the show, Dr. Carr. With great pleasure, Brother Cribs. As I said, the Roden Fellows Program is, is one of the most important things we have going. To have you all here and have it associated with the name of one of my intellectual heroes, Bill Roden, is a great honor and privilege. Thank you, Dr. Carr. And so you're pretty uh, active on social media. And so you tweeted about W.B. Du Bois uh, being on campus. And so how did that conversation come about and play out? In my Education in Black America class, we read a collection of Dr. Du Bois's essays. Well, actually, speeches he gave at historically black colleges. Uh, the, the name of the book is The Education of Black People. And we focus. Uh, we focused yesterday on his last essay, which is a speech he gave at Johnson C. Smith University in 1960, where he tells uh, uh, social science teachers, actually black school teachers, he tells them, look, these laws are going to change, and we will be given or have earned or fought for equality under the law. We'll get that. But then we're going to have to decide larger and deeper issues of race and culture. In other words, what are we going to be in a society uh, that has defined us basically around enslavement. And and finally, Du Bois's argument in that uh, speech, which is entitled Whither Now and Why, he says, you know, what he has been fighting for his entire life is not only equality under the law, but the right to develop African culture in America and make the same contribution that African people have made in ancient and medieval history to modern history. But he's basically trying to reconcile this idea that somehow black people in America should start their history with slavery with the idea that the fight for civil rights was never about becoming an American as much as it was about having equal human rights under the law and then being able to do what we do culturally, which extends, of course, from the origins of humanity to today. So, Dr. Carr, do you think Americans descendants of slavery should be able to mark a separate category on census and elsewhere? And what would the pros and cons be of that? Well, I don't have a problem. In fact, I think it might be useful in some ways to have a separate category that we could identify those of us whose ancestors came through American enslavement could certainly uh, identify ourselves uh, as having that status. But I also recognize that uh, the census is a political document and that we have open enemies that would love nothing more than to disaggregate data in that way. I think there's a similar, this is the similar dilemma we have with a category like Latino or Asian, which doesn't tell you much, which eventually you see a category like uh, Asian could be of any racial background, and you have Latino, 
which can be of any racial background, and then you have white folks who are Latino. So once you begin to slice and dice, that can disaggregate data in a way that could hurt us politically if we start talking about interest groups that would be sliced and diced that way. Say, for example, when you start talking about political gerrymandering and this kind of thing. But the pro side certainly would be that it would give us data on the numbers of Africans in this country who are descended from those who were enslaved. And that, that's kind of a, you know, a practical kind of consideration and something that might be useful to know more about. So, Dr. Carr, um, do you think that ADOS is really trying, is just a way for conservatives to court black people? Is it more divisive than a tool of understanding, in your opinion? Good question. I think ADOS is many things. I think it absolutely is that for some people. I think that uh, in terms of real people who are trying to organize around the country to demand reparations, I think many of those people uh, don't have any animosity toward any other group of people. I think there's a sincere and genuine effort on the part of many of the folks who are now beginning to associate with this ADOS hashtag with uh, the case for reparations. I think that there are also an element of folks who are looking to capitalize off of black misery. And some of those folks may be black. And, and, and I think that they, you know, old folks used to talk about doing well while doing good. And I think that some people might be involved in trying to make the case for reparations for people of African descent in this country and also look at possibly monetizing that struggle in a way that will allow them to sustain themselves, whether it be so they can organize full time or capitalize on it in different ways. So I think there are a lot of different elements and strands involved in what has emerged. But the one common thing they share is, of course, this entire, quote unquote, movement was generated in social media. And anytime you start talking about hashtag politics, you're not talking about organizing politics. You're talking about organizing, if any organizing takes place at all, in the wake of a virtual kind of expression of a sentiment. And that always has dangers because there are elements in social media who are absolutely organized to enact policy or to uh, execute a political strategy or carry out an economic interest or a political interest that in, in many times is at cross purposes with the interest of others who uh, have entered into that social media exchange. Hey, this is East again, and I wanted to know if the federal government and other entities were to acknowledge black Americans as a category separate from black immigrants, do you think the tensions will grow between them and black immigrants? Uh, I think that's a, that's absolutely possible. And not only is it possible, it might even be likely. And, and, and let me say this, East. One of the challenges of social media is that it flattens distinctions between folks who have engaged in long-range study or long-range organizing. It flattens the distinction between those kind of people and folks who may just be entering a discourse or may just be introduced to an idea on social media. And when I say it flattens the distinction, it means that everybody gets to talk to everybody and, you know, kind of anonymously. And, and, and so things get kind of lost in the flood of exchanges. Uh, in, in an ADOS movement between Africans who are descended from those who are enslaved and Africans who have come here in, in the wake of, of enslavement. Well, this becomes a problem because uh, the theme of advancing the group interests of African people has been a subject since the formation of this settler state that started out as a settler colony. 
Africans who were brought here have always struggled for liberation. And after the formation of the United States, Africans who were here have always benefited in their domestic struggle from the fear of American policymakers that they would link in solidarity not only with other poor people in this country, like poor whites or Native Americans or ultimately Latinos and others, but that they would link in solidarity with international movements. And therein lies the real challenge, I think. What ADOS does very effectively, whether it's intentional or not, is it separates the pan-Africanist kind of uh, impulse in black movements in America so that, for example, uh, when we think about Brown versus Board of Education, that's often read as a domestic struggle that African people in this country undertook to end Jim Crow in segregation, in education, and ultimately in, 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 uh, in public life. Well, it's true that, that that is the case. However, when you see Brown versus Board of Education decided, it is after World War II when black liberation movements in the Caribbean and Latin America and Africa primarily are threatening to rewrite the global map of them and, and, and displace American influence, particularly as the Soviet Union and China are appealing to these African populations saying, look at America, look at how they treat black people in America. You shouldn't really be siding with them. Well, that meant that there were concessions made. And this is the work of scholars like Gerald Horn, Carol Anderson. Many people have written about this. There were concessions made domestically to black folks in America that came as a direct result of the combination of domestic black struggle with fear of global black solidarity. That's where ADOS, I think, could threaten to undermine the kind of good work that solidarity does when you look beyond your national borders you have the ability to galvanize mass support for your domestic struggles. And what I fear is ADOS can undermine that kind of solidarity work, which flies in the face of two centuries of that kind of work. And I think that's where, when you're flattening the kind of discourse on social media, folks who are not aware of that history, that long history of struggle, and that long history of the impact of domestic and international struggles on each other, can come in and say, well, I don't owe anything to anybody. They just got here from Nigeria or Ghana, or they just came from Jamaica. Wait, slow down, slow down. You should study this. But, you know, with, with social media, study is not a prerequisite. So how do we, how, how do we combat that? Because, you know, as you said, you know, I keep thinking about, you know, when I think about this whole morass that we find ourselves in, and I, I'm thinking probably like the Boys Star and everything, you know, our, our salvation is, a, you know, Pan-Africanism is a linkage. How do we, and this almost takes us back, I, you know, I, I mean, we'll always be pitted against one another precisely because of that fear. So how do we combat this? You know, um, how do we, uh, you know, get to the idea of, uh, back to Pan-Africanism, back to a common denominator, is that, is that futile? No, I don't think it's futile. In fact, uh, Brother Bill, and, and you know this as well as, or better than any of us on this call, on, on this, in this conversation, because you've written about it over the years, you know, whether it be Mexico City in 1968, whether it be the entire career of Muhammad Ali, it, is, it has been those global, those Pan-Africanist thrusts that have allowed us to make to kind of weaponize our struggles domestically, I think how we fight it, ironically, is at least in terms of this age of technology and social media and folks kind of dealing with sound bites, one of the ways we fight it is by doing exactly what this podcast is doing. In other words, somebody's listening right now, 
somebody's thinking about this for the first time, somebody wrote down the title of one or two of these books or decided they're going to check out W.E.B. Du Bois, and somebody's going to be enlightened. Now, are they going to read a 100-page book or a 300-page book or a 20-page essay? Who knows? But because the podcast sits somewhere between the 280-character tweet or the Facebook post and the long study session, that podcast has the ability to enter the ear in the one medium that it seems like nobody's figured out a way to just place yet, which is radio. People will listen. And I think this is really part of the strategy. Beyond that, the only other thing I would say is, you know, as the, the great Latin American educator Paulo Freire says, you know, we make the road by walking. Nobody has a roadmap for what social struggle is going to look like in this age of disruptive media. And all we can do is try to kind of kind of figure it out. So whereas I would read your column religiously in the New York Times because I'm a reader and have been since I was you know, a little child. Somebody else listening to this is going to be introduced to this dialogue without ever having put her eye on a word in print. It's going to come in through the ears. So I think this is part of the part of the strategy. What do you think about uh, Kaepernick's uh, uh, trial? Mm, you know, you know. To me, it would be much more powerful if he never played a down of football again, because the minute he signs a contract. He, you know, it could threaten the momentum that he has built as a symbol. Now, to me, there is no explanation for this tryout or this kind of, you know, spectacle. There is no explanation that would, that would surprise me. This could be as small as Jay-Z feeling the sting of a rightfully earned rebuke for what he has done so far and the NFL trying to appease him by saying, okay, well, we'll give your boy a tryout. Or it could be as major as the NFL realizing that one way to puncture possibly any possibility of a subsequent movement of protest would be simply to give Kaepernick a workout. I just right. don't see how, you know, I just don't see how this plays to the benefit of our people. But, you know, at the end of the day, we live in a capitalist society, uh, and if Colin Kaepernick wants to stay in shape and throw the ball, you know, more power to him. But, no, nah, it wouldn't change me. I think I'm pretty much done with the NFL, and it feels kind of good, like any addict. You go through a period of withdrawal, <laughs> but after that, like Miles Davis, <laughs> and his father's an addict. And once you get through the addiction, it's like, okay, I'm good. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh. <laughs> so... Thank you again, Dr. Carr. But before we let you go, we'd like to do a trivia segment where we ask you some lightning round questions. So, East, take it away. Lord have mercy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to be fun, I promise. So the okay. first question is, since you teach in Tito Hall in D.C. and Temple in Philadelphia, who would you rather see perform, the Roots or a go-go band? Mm, I would love to see my man, Black Thought, Flow a effortless lyric over a funky beat laid down by EU Trouble Funk or Chuck Brown the Soul Searchers. How about that? Because they gotta have a, they gotta have a back, they gotta have a beat. So black go go beat. Okay, okay. So next question: Alan Iverson or Dr. J? Oh, now that's just not fair. That's <laughs> um, a good you one. Know, I, I'm closer to Brother Bill's uh, generation, so you know I gotta go with Dr. J. <laughs> One good thing about innovators is you can always date before and after them. And both those cats are innovators. But, you know, I, I'm a child of the 70s. So, you know, Julius Irving broke it up and did the remix, and everything that came after him kind of follows in his wake. So I got to go with that. <laughs> there you go. Good answer. <laughs> yes, sir, brother. <laughs> and the final question is, if you could start your own new class, what would the subject of the class be? 
Well, let me say this. The HBCU is like black people in general. They break your heart. They break your heart because you love them. The only thing that can break your heart is what you love. So if I had to start a new class, maybe the subject would be studying black love. How we loved each other from the beginning of time to now. And I think that if we were to pay very close attention to the ways that we have expressed our love for each other, we were found in the lesson of those ways, the solution to just about everything we would need to do to solve any problem come face us. So maybe it'd be a black love plan. That's great. Well, thanks again, Dr. Carr, for coming on to our show. If people want to follow you and your work, where can we find you? Well, the easiest way for the millennials, I guess, would be at Africana Carr, and that's on Twitter. So it's at A-F-R-I-C-A-N-A-C-A-R-R, Africana Carr. And uh, you can always email me at gcarr at howard.edu. And, uh, yeah, and listen, it's an honor. It's a privilege. I am a fan. I'm a consistent listener. And uh, you road fellows wear the name of an important cat, and you all are extending that legacy in ways that none of us can predict but all of us expect will help continue to do that intellectual work in ways that lead to helping our people and everybody else. So thank you so much for the invitation to participate. Hey, Doctor, thank you, man. You, you are just a consistent light. Uh, I just can't tell you how much I appreciate you. Same here, Bill. I mean, really, man. All right. Thanks, y'all. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll share our cheers and jeers from the week in our segment, Bravo Nabro. Before we close out the show, we want to leave you with Bravo Nabro, where we quickly share the insights in sports and culture that we liked and didn't like this week. East, start us off. So my Nabro for the week would be about he's African American male by the name of Khalil Wheeler Weaver and he's from New Jersey and so he's recently he's about twenty three years old I believe and he was recently found um, guilty of like murdering a young black teenage a college girl and I just think the situation with all the human trafficking and the kidnappings recently. Um, this is really sad because in court he stated that um, he specifically targeted young black women who um, eventually turned to sex workers or just want young black women in general because he figured nobody would really go deep into investigating and looking for them. So I thought that was really sad with the current times and all these missing girls, these missing young black girls. So that was my novel for the week. And my bravo for this week, is something that we were talking about earlier with the uh, new Disney Plus. When I do get it, I'm gonna have the opportunity to like relive my childhood with like that's a raven and all the shows I used to watch when I was younger. So that's my Bravo for the week. What about you, Bill? My Bravo for the week is the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Cleveland Browns. A remarkable display of barbaric behavior on national television, giving the American people just what they want. So I say, bravo. <laughs> say, my nabro just goes to Antonio Brown just on GP. <laughs> and my nabro goes to the Houston Astros. I understand that teams steal signs, uh, but when you use electronics to steal signs, I don't think that's fair, especially since they won a World Series in 2017 because of that. So definitely a nabro to the Houston Astros. And sticking with baseball, a bravo to my city of Los Angeles. Uh, the MVP awards came out, and... 
both winners, Mike Trout and Cody Bellinger, play for Los Angeles teams, so definitely a bravo to Los Angeles baseball. But wait a minute. How do you get these awards and your team loses? I mean, I don't get it. That, that's that's a millennial thing. Everybody gets a trophy. How do you get how do you get these awards and your team loses? Aren't you supposed to be on winning team? I feel like baseball is more of a team sport. So, like a player like Mike Trout, he's probably the greatest player of our generation, but he's just on a bad team, so it's not his fault. All right. Well, that's all we have time for today. If there's anything you'd like for us to cover, or if you want to leave us a comment. Tweet us at the undefeated hashtag Rodenfellows. You can contact us directly. I'm on Twitter at Cribs underscore Arthur. That's C R I B B S underscore A R T H U R. Me, I am on Twitter at East Dockery. That is E A S T D O C K E R Y. And I'm at W C Roden. That's at W C R H O D E N. Thanks for listening to the Roden Fellows Podcast. This show is produced by Aaron Matthewson and Randall Williams. Special thanks to Tarika Foster-Brasby and the ESPN Digital Audio Content Team. I'm Arthur Cridge, and I've been your host. Get all the HBCU 468 podcasts, as well as The Right Time with Bomani Jones and Morning Roast by subscribing to The Undefeated on the Listen tab of the ESPN app. Join us next week for another HBCU podcast, and don't forget to make The Undefeated your go-to site for a soulful look at sports and entertainment. Have a great week, everyone.